Well, it's indeed a privilege to be back with you here at Concord. Amen? I hope it is to me. It's so good to see you. I think of you often. As I was telling Greg uh, before, he prayed for us. Uh, the Lord opened up a hunting club for me down on the Abbeville Highway. So I'm in a hunting club down there, and a lot of times I'll come around the backside of Anderson, and I always think of everybody up at Concord. Don't get to come by the church because I'm going way farther south, but I think of you and pray for you and thank God for you, as Paul said, on every remembrance of you, as he said in Philippians 1.3. So it's so good to be here with you tonight and to share just a little bit, uh, not necessarily a sermon type thing, but some truth of how we got the Bible, and I know y'all been working through this with Dr. Cox, and you have an excellent book that you're using, okay, by Dr. Lightfoot. This is an excellent book to give you really <clears throat> reasons that our faith can be so strong, okay? Now, you and I, of course, believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and it's trustworthy, right? But in this book, you see some very valid, just plain, obvious reasons of how that Word of God came to us, how it has been copied, how it has been transmitted through the years, how with great detail and attention things have um, been copied, handed down from the, the, what we would call the Masoretes, the scribes of the Old Testament, really... Uh, preserving and copying the text and I've got some things up here for you to look at that they have done some of the ancient works of the Old Testament um, so that you can see them firsthand they're not originals okay I don't have any originals but they are pictures of originals so that you can kind of see what it looked like the Bible looked like when we started to what we have today now, I think I have a PowerPoint that may enter when I click like this. I have this button that works in my hand. Look at that. It's an amazing thing. Technology, you know, never ceases to amaze us, right? It can work like that. So, when you look at the Bible, tonight we're focusing on the Old Testament, how we got the Old Testament, okay? Now, You've heard this term, canon of Scripture, already in the Wednesday night studies, right? The canon. From the Greek word, kanon, and then from Hebrew, kane, which would be a type of measuring rod. A type of uh, what is called that it has to meet certain criteria to be in the canon. How many have ever built anything with wood or metal? Anybody ever done anything like that? Anybody ever used material to sew and, and do something, okay? You have to measure that out to make sure you get the right amount, okay? Well, the canon of Scripture is not measured in a physical way like you would have that with a measuring tape or a yardstick, but there are tests that have been applied from the receiving communities that this scripture had to meet to be considered the Word of God, okay? So there are many other books that are written that we do not consider the, vo the Word of God. We don't hear the voice of God clearly through them. They can co conflict or contradict with what God had already revealed before, 
And so that would not measure up to the canon. And it could also be very conditioned to just a historic event or a historic place and time, whereas the Word of God is relevant through all days and times and to all of us as God's people. Even though Moses wrote it 34 to 3200 years ago, um, the Pentateuch, the Word of God, is still as valid and relevant for us today as we look at the truths that are therein. Now, let me click one more time. All right. When you're talking about books that make it into the Old Testament and New Testament for that matter, but we're focusing on old tonight, there are three tests that each book had to meet. Now, it's not like there is a governing board. There is no OSHA, thank God. There was no OSHA back then or other governmental regulatory agency that said this is the Bible, okay? But the Jewish leaders, the rabbis, the Jews who received this word of God and began to read it and study it saw these three things came through in these books. Number one, click, would be that the author had to be a prophet or a prophetically gifted person. Okay? Now, how would they know there he was a prophet? Well, they would have sensed in their day and age that God's Spirit was upon this fellow to preach the Word. The book of Deuteronomy even says if a prophet prophesies something and it doesn't come true, he's a false prophet. Okay? So for them to tell, a prophet did have to speak a word and it did have to happen or not happen pretty quick, right? We think prophets are often talking about things in the future, all right? But in the Old Testament, 90 to 95 percent of what all the prophets wrote dealt with that time and calling people to repent. Not talking about the walking dead and the zombie apocalypse or whatever kind of crazy thing. People have ideas about the end of the world and that. Not very little prophecy of the Old Testament is pointed towards that. Though some is. And if you read Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, uh, those books, Jeremiah, a lot of the imagery you see in the book of Revelation will be uh, very similar to what you see in the Old Testament, all right, because the Old Testament provides the basis for that beast with horns representing kings and kingdoms, etc., like that. So the author had to be prophetic and a prophetically gifted person, one that they could see, sense, and know that God was working through. And of course, that is a very strong test for the very first five books of the Bible, the very beginning of God's revelation that we call the Pentateuch or the books of Moses, right? Because what? There's nothing before that to judge by. So the initial part of God's revelation came through Moses, a prophet unlike any other who met God face to face. Okay? Now... Number two, the Word is written to all generations, though we do admit that there are places in the law and the Pentateuch that deal with issues you and I no longer deal with, right? Okay. One of the laws in Exodus after the Ten Commandments, you know, is if you have an ox, an ox which would be a male cow. Well, there's not really a male because cow usually means female, right? A bull with horns. And if this ox is prone to goring people, you've got to keep it tied up, 
If you don't keep it tied up and it gets out and gores someone, you have to restore them monetarily and help them to get better. That's required of you under the law. Now, most of us don't have oxen that are prone to goring today, right? And we don't have to keep them, etc. One of the laws would say, if you see the sheep of your fellow countryman, do not just go away and act like you're too busy to deal with it. You take that sheep and you care for it and you keep it and you try to get it back to your fellow countrymen. Most of us don't even have sheep anymore, right? Okay, but guess what? All those laws, you say, well, we just don't have sheep. We don't have oxen pronged to goring. You know, all those kinds of things, that they're just not present for us today. But Jesus gave us a lot of help when it comes to the law. They tried to trick Jesus and said, what, are the two, what is the greatest commandment, right? And he said, love God with everything you got. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? The second command is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things hang all the law and the prophets. So what we see that may not seem to be as culturally relevant back then is still teaching us to love our neighbor as ourselves and to love God with everything we got. Okay? So we know that it's from a prophet and it's a prophetically gifted person who's writing to all generations, but click as well, that he writes in accordance with prior revelation. In other words, what is revealed first... If something comes later and claims to be a word from God, but it contradicts or conflicts with what has come before, then that would not be considered Holy Scripture, not the Word of God, because we know God would not contradict Himself. Okay? So these are what we call our three major tests for canonicity. These are not as easy to measure as we might think, though, are they? You can tell about the prophet, but like I said, there was no governmental agency and no step-by-step 122-page guideline for determining these. It's just that these were present as they sensed the voice of God, the word of God, that these things that he had said had happened, and they knew the word from experience and a sense of the spirit that they were true in those ways, okay, and happened historically. Now, that's what we would have to see in the 39 books you and I call the Old Testament. How many read and know how many books that the Jewish people would call the Old Testament. Anybody happen to read ahead in the book? And how many? Well, in the whole of the Old Testament, though, the first five would be the Pentateuch, yes, but how about through the old? We always go with 39 books in our English Old Testament. Yeah, how about 22? <laughs> okay. Because a lot of the, the Jewish community has put several books together. Samuel is one book. We have two. Kings is one. They have two. Chronicles, one. Yeah, they have two. Of course, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther are taken as one. All 12 of the minor prophets are taken as one book. Okay? So if you ever hear, well, the Jewish people only have 22 books in the Old Testament and we have 39, it's the same thing 
It's just the way you're categorizing and titling these works. Okay? So, no different. Our, our Old Testament, as, fo as followers of Christ and as Christians, is the exact same as the Jewish person's scripture. Now, they wouldn't call it Old Testament, would they? No, because they don't receive the New Testament. Though I have friends who are Jewish and are what they would call Messianic Jews. Uh, and they are firm believers in Jesus, you know. Um, I've spent time with them, hung out with them and things like that. And um, one fellow down in Atlanta, I got to know him a little. And so we would kind of harass each other. I would, uh, you know, say something to him, uh, you know, and maybe call him uh, a Jew. I said, how is it to be a Jew, you know? He said, pretty good, Gentile dog. <laughs> and I said, well, as long as you spell that D-A-W-G, I'm good with that, right? Some may remember at the 15, 14, 15 years ago here, I'm a Georgia Bulldog fan, right? Some things don't change. Seven, five, eight, and three, but not for those Clemson Tigers, national champs, right? Everybody's happy about that. I'm trying to be. Uh, no, I was very happy for them. Do you know, <laughs> the year before they won it last time in 1981, you know who won it in 1980? The Georgia Bulldogs. So if we work it just the opposite, who should win it this year, right? If we just flip-flop, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, that's probably a whole lot more likely. That's for sure. So of these 24... It's arranged in three ways. Click. Okay? All the Old Testament books come out. Number one, we call them the books of the law. Genesis to Deuteronomy, the first five. Now, there are other names. Click. We have Torah. That is the Hebrew word. All right? Meaning law or instruction. It refers to the five books of Moses. The Torah, the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. All right? Jesus, over and over in his words, referred to Moses said, Moses told you, Moses wrote, things of that nature. Okay? So I do hold the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. If you ever have other books that you read, certain textbooks, they will say Moses did not write them, but they were four documents put together. Have anybody ever heard of the JEDP theory? No, maybe. Well, I don't think you're missing a lot if you haven't. But in German higher critical studies in the 1800s, that's when it really came to, to be the JEDP that there were four documents, each with those names, that after the Babylonian exile from 587 to 539, some priests put these together to form the Pentateuch, kind of like a four-piece jigsaw puzzle that all went together. Now, I do not hold that, but I'm just telling you that was the major theory. Uh, started really in German critical scholarship in the 1800s. Um, I think eventually everybody in scholarship in the 1900s saw you really couldn't prove that, and so it just kind of started fading away some, and some just accepted, and others, most, uh, others don't. Most evangelicals don't those who believe in Jesus, that you must be born again, that the word of God is inerrant in the autographs, etc. So, mosaic authorship of the first five books of the Bible. 
okay? Next, we have what we call the prophets, and they come in two ways, two cliques. The former prophets are what you and I call the historical books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, all right? Now, you say, well, they shouldn't be called prophets. Well, it's just the way that the Bible is outlined, all right? They might not have been prophets per se, but... It's the order because first are the former prophets, that is the history of Israel, from the conquest when they come into the promised land under Joshua's leadership, coming from the plains of Moab, crossing the Jordan, first at Jericho and then going throughout the whole land, all the way through to the destruction of the nations. And then being sent off the land in exile in 722, the northern nation going in exile after the Assyrians destroyed Samaria, the northern capital. 587, when Nebuchadnezzar led the Babylonians to destroy the Judahites and Jerusalem, and probably the temple as well. And if you have, if you like the Ark of the Covenant lore, that's when most serious scholars would say that the Ark of the Covenant was destroyed was in 587 because Nebuchadnezzar not only attacked Jerusalem, but he burned the temple. Okay, so Raiders of the Lost Ark may be a good fanciful story in that, but not most evangelical scholars don't think that it's either the Ark is somewhere down in Egypt or in a government warehouse in Washington, D.C., if you remember how it ended like that. So we wouldn't go with that. So the nations are in exile through there. Then come the writing prophets, our three majors, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and the 12 minor prophets, which, remember, the Jewish people would look at that as one book. The 12 minor prophets is called the book of the 12 or the minor prophets, okay? But then we have another section, a last section that we call the writings, and I hope you like this catch-all phrase, click. Everything else is in the writings, right? There are 11 books there, and books you and I treasure. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Ruth, Chronicles, Esther, uh, Chronicles Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah are in there as well. Okay? Lamentations, Jeremiah's reflection after seeing the destruction of Jerusalem in 587. So all of that comes together. And makes up our total canon of the Old Testament. In these, they're written by a prophet or prophetically gifted person. Or they are completely in accord with prior revelation. And or they're written to all audiences, right? We learn from the truth that happened in the Old Testament. Okay? Now, you know what? Even our New Testament tells us that. In 1 Corinthians 10 and in Romans 15, verse 4, what does Paul tell us? Paul says, the things that happened before to the Israelites, they are written down for our instruction. Okay? So the Apostle Paul clearly in Corinthians and in Romans tells us that what happened in the Old Testament is, it meant something to them, but it's also for our instruction as well. So I pray that we don't neglect it, 
that we read it, we take it in, and we do see what the Word can teach us, tell us, warn us, encourage us in the same ways. I mean, you understand, it's so easy to pick up the Psalms and just read them, right? And just love to read the Psalms, right? Because you have a person of faith, David or the others who wrote, you know, even Moses wrote one Psalm, Solomon wrote another. Asaph, sons of Korah, some are anonymous, we don't know for sure who wrote them, but it's such an expression of faith. Sometimes when there's struggle, when there's hurt and where there's wonder and where there's crying and anxiety, oh, you know, David would say things like, my soul is just so troubled within me, O oh Lord. You know, my, I, I'm troubled laying on my bed. Thoughts of anxiety, the Hebrew word makov comes there when David is sometimes speaking of anxiety or troubled of heart. Well, that's not hard for us to understand and identify with those kinds of psalms, right? And the ones that are just simply praising the Lord, right? So it ranges all of the human emotions, and it's so easy for New Testament believers to read the psalms and just say, I understand that struggle. I understand that praise. I understand that struggle that at the end of the psalm comes out in praise as God takes us through um, our lives as disciples, whatever we may go through. All right, now, that's how the Old Testament's put together. Now let's specifically talk about how the books came to us, all right? In your book, it's a, which is a great book, I encourage you to take a look at it. I enjoyed reading the three chapters about the Old Testament there. You usually start with the earliest versions and things like that, but I want us to start a little earlier because I know folks at Concord are thinkers, good-spirited, sweet-spirited, and thinking people, right? Gotta be, we want to be thinkers, right? Love God with our minds, too. Use that, whatever God has given us here. We want to use that to His glory and honor. All right, before you get this, <clears throat> that probably weighs about 20 pounds, this is a copy of the, what we call the Masoretic Text that I'm going to show you in, in just a minute. But before we got to this, how did it start? Click. God inspires an author to write. Then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, click, the author produces the work, and we call it the what? The autograph. Okay? So, in text-critical studies, or in studies about the actual texts and manuscripts that come to us, the originals, which we don't have any, and if we did by the time now that we have so many textual witnesses, I don't know if we'd know if we had an autograph or not, both New Testament and Old Testament. And New Testament has many, many more manuscripts to look at than the Old Testament does, okay? So we call that the autograph. Now... My colleagues at North Greenville, and I, I'm sure some down here at Anderson, I've gotten to know uh, Dr. Frazier, uh, Chuck, Chuck uh, Frazier, right? Preaching prof. No, I got his, 
last name wrong. Fuller, Fuller, Fra- not Fraser. My, last, my middle name's Fraser. It's Fuller. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's how it goes. Man, you get 50 and things, you just, it just gets harder, doesn't it? Your hair turns gray, your stomach pokes out, and your mind doesn't want to work like it used to. That happens. I don't know. Part of the fall, Genesis 3, right? We're in a group called the Evangelical Theological Society, which is a group of guys who are, you know, uh, studiers of the scripture and uh, have terminal degrees in the area of theology, biblical studies, um, counseling, etc. And we have to sign a doctrinal statement. Number one that we have to agree and affirm to be in our society is that you believe God is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He exists as a trinity, okay? So you have to be a trinitarian. You can't be a unitarian, all right? Secondly, we sign that we believe that the Word of God is inerrant in the autographs. That is what our doctrinal statement says, inerrant in the autographs. That when it came from the pen of the inspired author, that work was completely inerrant. Okay? Without error. All right? Now, I'm not saying that doesn't mean Moses could have, you know, had an erasure or have to do something like that. But the message of it would have been, it would have come out inerrant. That there was no question about the message God gave this author, this prophet, okay? Now, once you have that, and let's just, for instance, use Moses. Moses starts writing, right? And Moses has written, okay? What happens after that? You have one scroll. So then starts what? Click. Yeah, the copying process, right? All right. So then the copying of the text begins. Now, I put a little note up there just to kind of let you see for the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament autographs occurred, had to be produced between about 1446, and that's an approximate date, depending on how you date the Exodus, to 400 B.C., and that's a very round approximate date, okay? to the end of the Old Testament and the books. And that depends on exactly how you want to date the prophet Malachi and or the book of uh, Nehemiah, all right? Because we can get to at least the year 432 in what's happening with Nehemiah as he is part, a cupbearer to Persian king Artaxerxes, etc., etc., okay? So the first date is Moses. The 1446 is what we call the early date for the Exodus, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt. Now, assuming Moses wrote all the Pentateuch, he was alive for four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? Because we know he was born, at least the first part of Exodus, that's when he's born. But, uh, you know, but somehow God inspired him, perhaps through sources, perhaps through oral tradition of understanding what happened before he was alive in Genesis, And there's really no way for us to know how God told him everything to write in Genesis, okay? It may seem a little easier for us to understand, though, that Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy 
Of course, Moses has experienced so much of what's going on there. All right, so we know that he would have a firsthand knowledge. But anybody can write firsthand knowledge. He would still have to be inspired to write and to be the prophet for everything to be recorded. Okay? And again, as Jesus often said, what did Moses tell you? What did Moses say? What did Moses write? If Jesus ascribes it to Moses, I'm sure going to not disagree with what Jesus said. Simply not. As I said, that's one reason I would not hold the JEDP theory. Okay? Now, the copying of the text begins... One more click, I think. And guess what? Between 1446 and 400 B.C., that's when all the autographs were produced and scrolls started being produced. The copying process started. We don't know exactly when, where, how many, etc. Okay, but we do know that. I mean, the text itself would tell us about scrolls of the law. 2 Kings 22, they're renovating the temple. They find a scroll of the law. It was kept in the temple. All right. We know at Jeremiah's day that they had scrolls and the king was reading the scrolls of prophecy or the law, etc. Okay, so we can see that, though those date to the 600s and 500s B.C. The basic standard text from the autographs to them all being put together is what this big book here. We call this the Masoretic Text. Okay? Groups of men, specifically those living on the side of the north or the shore of the Sea of Galilee in the city of Tiberias, and the family of Ben Asher. We call them the Tiberian Masoretes because they were in Tiberias. They started in about 500 A.D. The Masoretes did us great service in preserving all the books that had been in the canon. Not only did they preserve them, they counted what you and I call verses. And they punctuated them. And they counted words per line and lines per book. Now, they didn't have chapters yet, okay? So that when you look at the end of a book, as these Masoretes did it, it'll just have some Hebrew writing that says, total of the pasukim, which would be like our period, basically. It's the ending of a line. They would count that. And every time they copied, they had to go back and count. If it's a long book, you could have... 200, 300, 45, 900 of those. But I was looking at it for Obadiah. Does anybody else want a short book in the Old Testament? Anybody know how many verses are in there? 21. So I was looking at that in my Hebrew Bible, and that's easy enough. If you look at there, and the Masoretic Mark says what? Total Pasukim, 20 and 1. <laughs> that was easy enough versus when you get the shorthand numbers that you have to kind of go by a guide because I don't have all those ancient Hebrew numbering systems memorized so I have to look at a little guide and kind of count it up. Obadiah was easy. That was 21. Number 20, number one. It's easy enough. Okay. Now, the Masoretes worked for hundreds of years, probably from about 500 to 1,000 approximately. They took great copies 
great pains in copying, counting lines, counting the midpoints of the text, things like that. They made marginal notes. That's what we call the masora, the notes that are there. That in these big books, you can kind of see off in the corner of the, right? You see the main columns of scripture, but the little notes beside and the notes below. Masora parva would be small. Masora magna would be large there at the bottom. Oh, that's good. A little upper body exercise. Okay? Now... By the year 1008, we have that all coming together in a book form or a codex, and we call it Codex Leningradensis, Codex Leningrad, because it's stored where? The ancient Russian city of Leningrad. At the National Museum there, I think it's called St. Petersburg today, I believe. Is that right? Anybody? Dr. Hopkins, you've probably been over there, haven't you? You've been all around the world. Anyway, St. Petersburg, Leningrad. There you go. Okay. What's the problem here, though? From the numbers we've seen to when the autographs were written to the date you see of the final kind of version. And a lot of years, right? If the Old Testament stopped and, and there's nothing inspired after 400... It's 1,400 years before we get what we call our basic working Hebrew text. Now, there's one other one that we call at that time. It's called the Aleppo Codex. Aleppo's been in the news lately, hasn't it? Um, I kind of haven't watched the news in 10 years or so. But I do hear snippets. And I did hear, you know, I know there's a civil war in Syria. And Aleppo is in Syria. The Aleppo Codex dates to about 100 years prior, 50 to 100 years prior to the Leningrad text, okay? But we don't have the whole text because the original was kept in, in Aleppo, and in 1947, right about the time Israel was becoming a new nation, vandals, rebels in Syria attacked it and, and destroyed a lot of it. Eventually, what the remains of the Aleppo Codex got down to Jerusalem and have been there ever since, and they're still there. And the Hebrew University in Jerusalem is working on a Hebrew Bible based off the Aleppo Codex that they have. Just if you want to know that, just for fun, right? Playing Trivial Pursuit or, you know, drinking coffee at five bucks. You know, somebody may want to know about the Aleppo Codex. There you go. But Masoretic text is really what our base is. When I had to learn Hebrew, got, excuse me, got to learn Hebrew, and you buy a Hebrew Bible, that is the Masoretic text. Okay? So that's what we learn in seminaries. That's what we do. Okay? We learn that. We have to learn the language and all that. Now, the Masoretes helped us too because Hebrew originally didn't have any vowels written. All it was was consonants. Now, they spoke the vowels, but they didn't have them written. And you have to have vowels in a language. Every linguist will tell you you have to have a vowel, right? And so, I, you know, I've thought before, how in the world did they know how to pronounce things, right? But I think it's probably easier than we might think. If you, just, if you see the letters, I don't know, like B-L-D-G, 
as an abbreviation in English, what would you say that is? Building. How'd you know that? There are no vowels. You just get used to it and seeing certain letters together and certain letters together make certain words, don't they? Yeah, that works until you get like an ancient name like Artaxerxes or something like that because what in the world would that be here? <laughs> you know, but it, 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 for your basic words, so they would pronounce the vowels, but they didn't write them. But the Masoretes developed a system for all those sounds and they wrote them above and below the line and we call those the vowels, so we have to learn that. That's like lesson two in Hebrew. Number one's the alphabet. Lesson two is the vowels. Because we have to learn how to pronounce it. Street signs in Israel now will have the Hebrew with the vowel points under them. Why? Because many people, if they're coming back to Israel, they're trying to teach them how to pronounce the Hebrew. So they have it that way. Now on the big, like, green signs on the road, they don't have vowel points there. Okay, it'll just be the consonants, and it's amazing. It got four consonants. It'll be like an N and a TS and an R and a T. And everybody in the world, when they see those four letters, they know they're in what city? N T S R T, Nazareth. You just know. You just gonna get the sense of that when you're working with a language like that. Okay, but that's a lot of time between. The autographs and our final, what we call the basic Hebrew copy. 1,400 years. The skeptics would say, what? That's too long. The, that cannot be correct. The text must be incorrect and not trustworthy. Okay? Now, what also happened in the year 1947, not the Aleppo Codex being destroyed, but, click, yeah, in 48 they declared their independence and they had to fight everybody around, so the Israeli War of Independence in 48 and 49, but out near the Dead Sea there was a Bedouin shepherd boy who was out tending goats and he was near a cave and threw a rock trying to get his goat or whatever and, and it didn't sound like a rock being thrown in a cave should sound. So he goes in and what does he begin to find? He finds these clay pots and in them contain scrolls. And it's a fascinating story to say the way it worked. He kept these scrolls and eventually went from the Dead Sea into Bethlehem, which is probably only about 15 miles, as you and I would say it, but you got to either walk on the hilltop or up and down the valleys. It's, it's all mountainous between Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and the Dead Sea. and goes straight down to the floor of the world at the Dead Sea, about 1,300 feet below sea level. Jerusalem's about 2,600 approximately. Okay, So he goes up and he sells these to an antiquities, antiquity, you know, archaeological kind of dealer named Kondo, K-A-N-D-O, in Bethlehem, okay? Well, everybody's just trying to make a little money. They found some scrolls, right? You know, hey, trying to make a little money. So Kondo winds up selling them to Metropolitan Mar Athanasius Samuel of the Syrian Orthodox Church in Jerusalem, and he then makes some money. 
Well, eventually, though, Metropolitan Samuel begins to realize how valuable these three scrolls, they start with three, they are, runs an ad in the Wall Street Journal in the late 40s, advertising three scrolls for sale, price, quarter of a million dollars. That was a lot of money back then. That's a lot now, too, but for three scrolls, that's a lot of money back in the 40s, right after World War II, four or five years after that. Well, the problem is now Israel's a nation by 48, 49. They have archaeologists. They have a Department of Antiquities, the IAA, Israeli Antiquities Authority. And one of those men, E.L. Sukenik, famous Israeli archaeology, sees this and begins to ask questions, goes to America where he'd brought them over to New York to, you know, to sell these things and they get the scrolls, realize that they've been found in Israel and Israeli law as the new nation is anything that is found in Israel is property of the state of Israel. Okay, the way it worked before with the British there or, or the Ottoman Empire, it wasn't going to work that way anymore. So they did acquire the scrolls. And then they began to say, okay, shepherd boy, tell us where you found these. Take us out there. So they go out and they start finding all these caves. They wound up finding 11 caves. And just two weeks ago, did anybody see on the Jerusalem Post? I bet you read that every day, right? <laughs> they found a 12th cave at the Dead Sea Scrolls. Though they won't really have any earth-shaking things. They have a few other little things in it. But they found another cave that, that won't be nearly as groundbreaking as the 11 that were found. And we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, it took years to get these things to where we could read them. Many of them had been in the desert for almost 2,000 years in a cave, very dry, very arid place. Well, the people working with the scroll project then had to kind of learn how to do this. So, you know, some common sense prevailed and they began to say, these are so dry that there's no way we can unroll them. They'll just turn to powder. So they figured out a way to rehumidify them. They put some of the scrolls in a cigar humidor. And then they would put humidity back into them and then carefully unroll them. And we just had some tremendous finds. Now, most of these scrolls dated to when they're written when these scrolls were written was between 200 B.C. and 50 A.D. That is a lot closer to those autographs of the Old Testament, isn't it? Shake your head like, yeah, that's a lot closer. And then when we studied them all and we looked at them, guess what the Dead Sea Scrolls told us about the Masoretic text? Not exact. There are differences. As we fully admit, there are differences. But some are very minor. They're just simply changes in spelling or how you might write what they started using in Qumran at the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The orthography of the day was to use vowel letters. You would take the, the Y, the H, and the V or W sound in Hebrew and you would put them in words to make the vowel sounds, which was a kind of a new thing by 200 B.C. in the intertestamental period, okay? 
but they largely, the Dead Sea Scrolls, by and large, for the most part, agree with and confirm the Masoretic text. There are differences, okay? But when you look at the types of differences they are, and you know it's simply a spelling or, a, or a, maybe a, a, a vowel letter difference, they don't change really the meanings of the words, okay? So we acknowledge there are some differences, but we also know that this has largely been confirmed. So whereas before, if someone was skeptical of this, the Dead Sea Scrolls showed what? There's no real need to be skeptical of this. We can continue studying the fine points and the details of where the Dead Sea Scrolls differ from the Masoretic text, okay? Which there is a very interesting one in the Samuel text. I think it's 4Q, Samuel 1. It's at, at, at Qumran. The way they date the scrolls, or the way they, they name the scrolls, is the cave number comes first, 1 through 11. And then it'll have a Q to say Qumran, you know. And then it will be the name of it. So it'd be like 4Q, 1 Sam. And that's how you'd know it was cave 4 from Qumran, the text of 1 Samuel. Now, the Masoretic text has Goliath at how tall when David fought Goliath? He is six cubits, right? So that is nine feet tall. Okay, the Dead Sea Scroll text has him at four cubits. Four and a half cubits, four and a half cubits, excuse me, four and a half. Which puts Goliath at six foot nine. Just being real, that's what it says, okay? Now, does that disprove the Bible? No, it means you got a difference from the Qumran tradition to the Masoretic tradition. All that is is the height of Goliath. You say, well, yeah, but, it, but it's, I realize that. But everything in the story is still the same. It's all still happening whether Goliath is six foot nine or he's nine feet tall, either one, right? You see what I mean there? So, there is room at times, and even at the Dead Sea Scrolls, to say, well, they, you know, they, there could be a copying error there. We don't claim inerrancy in the complete transmission of the text, do we? The inerrancy is in the autograph. The transmission of the text, maybe there could be a scribal error at Qumran. But when like 98% of your textual tradition of the Old Testament agrees when it comes from this year and a thousand years later, do you see how reliable that is and how trustworthy that is for us? Because so, you've got things spanning a thousand years from Qumran to the Masoretic text, and everything's largely in agreement. Okay, now, a couple of little things that go from there. After the scrolls, we had a couple of other things that we use as textual witnesses to the Old Testament. The Samaritan Pentateuch. The Samaritans began in the year 722, when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and the ten tribes, 
they began to bring conquered peoples in and they intermarried with the Israelites. Thus, they called them Samaritans. And by the time of Jesus, 700 years later, we remember the tension between the Jews and Samaritans. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. They saw them as half-breeds, not ethnically pure Jews because they had Gentile dog blood in them, right? <laughs> okay. Which is fine because you really don't get to be a son of Abraham genealogically. Paul says that it's people who are faith who are children of Abraham. Okay? There still has to be faith as Abraham had. Now, the Samaritan Pentateuch is written, and it's largely in agreement, though they do have a few things they change, because in Samaria, it's 40 miles north of Jerusalem, and so they don't like Jerusalem and Mount Zion as the main area. They like Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, which you also see in the Old Testament. It was the place where when uh, Moses was giving them the cursings and blessings in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. He said, when you get into the land, you put six tribes on Mount Ebal, you put six on Mount Shechem, you say these curses and blessings together, and everybody ratifies them. So it's a very neat place. I've only been able to go one time. I've probably been to Israel now about ten times. I think I hit ten times last year. Thank God. It's very, that's his grace to be able to do that. Okay? And I've only been able to get up to the Samaria area, Mount Ebal Garrison, once, and... Um, so I would love to go again, um, but you know, you just kind of have to wait and see because it's it's in the middle of the West Bank. It's, you know, so it's it, it's not like driving through Jerusalem or Tel Aviv uh, nowadays. So uh, you know, just have to be careful. I always like to have an Arabic guide with me, <laughs> an Arabs <laughs> and one of my Arab guides, and then I always feel better when I'm in the Palestinian area that way. Okay, now. This is a textual witness that we have that came from even earlier than the Masoretic text, all right? It does have some changes that reflect Samaritan ideology, all right? But guess what? By and large and for the most part, what does it agree with? The later Masoretic text, okay? By the time of Jesus... The language of the day, obviously they were speaking Koine Greek, as Greek, uh, the Greek culture had invaded since the time of Alexander the Great in about 332 B.C. in Palestine. So the New Testament is written in Koine Greek, but a lot of the Jewish people, instead of speaking strictly Hebrew, it became a, an Aramaic Hebrew. Okay? So with the Aramaic language comes what we call the Aramaic Targums that are written in the Christian millennium, okay, in the early, from 100 to 500 A.D. Now, what these are, though, is more paraphrases in Aramaic. They're not just strict translations, but at times paraphrases of Scripture and its interpretation written out, Okay. But they help us. Targum Onkelos, Targum Jonathan are the two largest um, Targums that we have. They are written in Aramaic, so there can be some changes in spelling, but they in a large part agree and don't change anything that we have in the Masoretic text, okay? The last uh, text that I would talk about is what we'll call the Septuagint, okay? 
Now this is the Greek version of the Old Testament. It is pretty old. It was done apparently in Alexandria, Egypt in the 3rd century B.C. If we can trust the traditional letter that gives us information about how the Septuagint came to be, the idea is that 72 rabbinic leaders came from Jerusalem down to Alexandria, Egypt, divided the Old Testament into 72 sections and took 72 days to translate it. That's kind of the folklore of it. And for some odd reason, we call it 70 instead of 72. LXX, 70. So we just call it Septuagint. 70, Septuagint, same kind of thing. All right? But we don't know for sure if that's exactly how it happened. Um, the letter that we have that tells us this also says that it was really that the Pharaoh had just commissioned the law to be. So just the Pentateuch. But we wind up with all of the Bible in Old Testament. It's all of the Old Testament in Greek, all right? And then we can't come up, there are many editions of the Septuagint. It's old, and so it's an ancient witness to the text, but it's in a different language, so we can't compare it one-to-one always with the Hebrew to Hebrew, because it's a Hebrew translated into the Greek of the 2nd, 3rd century B.C., Okay. Very interesting and very important the study of the Septuagint. What we have mostly that's different is the ordering of books, and sometimes we have shorter. The Septuagint is shorter than the Masoretic text. In Jeremiah, one seventh to one eighth different, shorter. Left some things left out. The prophecies of the nations are put in different places. Septuagint has them in the middle of the book. Masoretic text in Jeremiah puts them in 46, chapters 46 to 51, right before the final chapter in 52. Okay? So, changing the order from the Masoretic text, you got a translation, transition into Greek or a translation into Greek. So, it's there. We have to study it. We have to see it. But by and large, and for the most part, what does it do? It goes pretty well with the later Masoretic tradition that we have. Okay? So, we can count on it. How the Word of God has come to us in the Old Testament here. We don't have nearly as many textual witnesses that have been transmitted over the years as we do in the New Testament. But we have what we have, and in tremendously large portions, they all agree. There are some differences, but no difference is faith-shaking. No difference is doctrine-changing. No difference is faith-destroying. All right? Like I said, whether, whether Goliath was six foot nine or nine feet tall... He was probably a lot taller than most Jewish men at the time, and especially David, who was a teenager when he went up against him, right? Questions? Arguments? 
Well, <laughs> well <laughs> thou hast said. <laughs> yeah, the word is the word, isn't it? Yeah. And we want people, whether they're Jewish, whether they're Muslim, or whether they're atheist or secularist, we want them to come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, right? So we want to be about, as I was just reading in Galatians 3 today in my hermeneutics class or interpretation class, you know, Galatians 3 says, Abraham believed God and he accounted it to him as righteousness. Therefore, those who are of faith are children of Abraham, right? Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. So, all of the covenants to Abraham are ultimately fulfilled in Christ, and those who come to Christ are children of Abraham. So, my friend, I think what we ought to do is go over to Israel and say, no, the Jews don't really have access to this land because they're not a faith like Abraham was. He was a believer. I'm a believer. I need five acres of land right here. <laughs> That's a joke. That is not a truism. Okay. Yes, sir. Well, not every Jew was, right? Because the disciples were Jewish and the earliest followers are Jewish. And in the early days of the church, there was probably think, wondering, well, this is just going to be, you know, the Romans might have thought, well, it's just going to be a sect in Judaism, you know. They're just going to kind of stay there. But the leaders yeah. in the day of Jesus yeah. just against the way he... I think it's amazing what power can do to anybody. They weren't looking for that type of Messiah, and they had the power of the day. But you the know? ones who had uh, written down the scriptures over the years mm -hmm. were very faithful to be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you know, Paul will tell us in Romans, what does he tell us about all the Jews? He says, not all of Israel was Israel. So there was an unbelieving part of Israel that Paul tells us. So the ones who were in authority might not have just been the ones copying it down they might have just accepted more of the traditions about what had been copied down rather than letting the word speak for itself which is a good reminder for us in this 500th year of celebrating the reformation of Martin Luther who 500 years ago tacked the 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg castle scripture alone there was so much tradition that they had on top of the copied manuscripts that sometimes Jesus himself even said in John chapter 5 he says you search the scriptures you should think in them you have eternal life but they testify of me there's a blinding that sin can do regardless of how religious you are regardless of how religious a situation you grow up in right all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and it can blind us even when we have the blessing of the scriptures I think we could see that today right as well just as easily and just as well 
The idea that we have on those is, yes, that these guys at Qumran, and I say guys because for the most part it was to be an all-male society. The biblical scrolls were at Qumran, but also sectarian documents, the Damascus scroll, community rule, how they came and put all their money into a common pot, and they lived communally. They bathed, and they went through ritual baths, and they were very quiet and very respectful, and... um, that kind of thing so we have those documents there that tell us that as well so our idea is that when the Romans started fighting the Jews in 66 from 66 AD to 70 the Jewish Roman War the Romans about 68 left outside of Jerusalem and just started destroying villages all around and we think that the Qumran sectarians put these scrolls out there in those caves to keep the Romans from destroying it because that's how we date when, we do, when we've done the archaeology at Qumran um, we've dated the destruction to around that time of 68 AD pretty close to that time yeah and that's to me an amazing thing now I know scholars don't you know to, to, we don't want to get too sensationalistic over something or too overly spiritual at times. But think about it. These scrolls were in one place on earth, the Dead Sea, where it gets only four inches of rain a year. And these were copied and put in a cave there. If you'd put it in a cave up in above Lake Jocassi, well, it'd be mildewed in three years so bad you couldn't read it. And it'd be green and falling apart, right, with all the humidity we have. Or we used to have when it used to rain. (laughs) You know, so that's what we think, yes. They were put in there to hide them from the Romans. Yeah, now there were what we call apocryphal books there at Qumran. The Copper Scroll and these uh, Genesis Apocryphon, they were there. And of course, they didn't make the canon, but... You know, they were still wondering, there was still wonder about maybe could these go into and be used in the New Test for the New Testament people or for people, for Jews even, who were living at the time of Christ and moving forward rather than just those 39. So it could have been what we call a quasi-canonical book or a para-canon kind of thing. The Maccabees are in what I call the Apocrypha proper, and that's what's in the Catholic Bible. Yeah. But (laughs) we're thankful for the Maccabees, though, and the Apocrypha, because that's really our main source of intertestamental history. And what was happening um, really from about the time of 175, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, the Seleucid ruler who was began persecuting the Jews and their Maccabean revolt where they just rose up and took back the temple and cleansed it and where Hanukkah came from was in that intertestamental time and it's described in Maccabees so we don't preach from it but for history and learn understanding what led up to Jesus birth and the events that were happening in Jewish life leading up to Jesus birth it's an indispensable invaluable text Josephus, he, he helps us understand a few things too. You're right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, and Josephus, you know, was eyewitness not that early. He wasn't there during the revolt, but he was there during the Jewish-Roman wars when, you know, he was almost executed after by Emperor Titus. No. Not Trajan. That came, he came later. By the Roman emperor at the time. <laughs> okay. Well, I know it's time. It's been great to be here with you. Let's pray. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, the trustworthiness of your word. But Lord, we pray that we'll know your word. God, that we will take it in. We will soak it in. We will drink it into our lives. Lord, that your word will form our very hearts and minds and souls. And that people will know we are your disciples, Jesus, by our love for each other. And they'll know that we're your disciples because we point people to you, sharing the gospel with them, praying that they will come to faith in Christ because he is truly the only way of salvation. And we give you all glory in the fact that we have a Bible we can trust. And thanks to your oversight, your guidance, and your provision for us in receiving your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Got everything up here too. Come by and look at it.